This episode is brought to you by my friends at Very, the creators of the famous stand-up Veridesk and other office furniture. If you're like me, you're suddenly working from home. My best productivity tip is to set up a dedicated workspace. My comfy couch or the kitchen table so close to the refrigerator and snacks wasn't really working for me. So I recently set up a fully loaded home office setup using office furniture pieces from Very, and now I've got a whole mission control in a separate room for my kids and the dogs ready to roll. Very has everything you need to transform your home workspace, from desks, ergonomic chairs, and converters that transform any table in your home into a standing desk. Products are super easy to set up by yourself with little or no assembly, usually within minutes. Shipping is free in the US and most items ship out next business day. Right now you can save 10% off Very Home Office products with the code WFH2020. See the full collection and save at Very.com. That's V-A-R-I.com and use the code WFH2020 and check out to save 10%. Now let's get back to the show. The best, the best, the best. We're Atari. We have the vision, and we invented the technology. A phenomenon that spread like wildfire around the planet. Don't watch television tonight. Play it. Introducing the new Atari. 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 Hi, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today, I'm here with Nolan Bushnell, one of the founding fathers of the video game industry, founder of Atari, and 20 other businesses like the Chuck E. Cheese restaurant franchise current CEO of BrainRush, Nolan, welcome to the show. Great to be here. I always ask my guests, how did you get this job? Tell us your story. Well, I basically worked in an amusement park uh, and played games on the big computers uh, when I was in engineering school. And I was probably the only guy that was a carny and an engineer. Awesome. Uh, how did you get interested in video games? I mean, that you're the pi- one of the pioneers. Um, had huge success. I mean, how did you become interested in that? I always feel like you stand on people's shoulders. And the guy that I stood on the shoulders of was a guy named Steve Russell, who programmed a game called Space War on the PDP-1. And I played it at the university and fell in love with it. And because of my carny background, I said, you know, if I can make this cheap, there's business here. And there was. Yeah. So where did you go from there? How did you get started? Essentially, I had to wait for the technology to catch up with me. And so I graduated, worked in industry for a year and a half. And one day, a trade magazine came across with a very low-cost computer. And I said, maybe the time is right. And went forward and never really looked back. How did you start developing um, kind of gameplay principles? A lot of the stuff that you started and pioneered is still so prevalent and and pervasive today. What did you look at? Did you look at like what people wanted to do? Did you look at what uh, people enjoyed doing? Was it about gamification? Talk to us about that a little bit, the process. We were really, really lucky because we were, we started out in the coin-operated game business. In the the Midway games and... Yeah, yeah. And, and the coin-operated game business had a really good metric. You count the quarters at the end of the week, and if the people liked your game, there were a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't like your game, there weren't that many. And so we got really good feedback as to what people liked, what they didn't like, tweaks that you could make. Sometimes you'd start out with a game that didn't earn anything, and you'd watch people play it. You could figure out what they didn't like, change that, all of a sudden you turn it into a success. So we had a really good feedback 
in our early lives of the video game business. And later on, those skills went on to cartridges and the other things that we did. So it's it's coming up kind of in a uh, big time of the year with Pong, right? Right. 40-year anniversary. Amazing. You know, I must have done it when I was two or three. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Where's the time gone? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember it. I mean, it's so nostalgic and yet so, I mean, even to this day, classic, timeless, like so still fun. Well, you know, there's an interesting story that I like to tell just to give you an idea of where people's eyes or minds were. People ask me all the time, how does the TV station know that I turned the knob? Because the idea of creating an image locally was totally foreign. What's happening with video games now? What's your take on the progression, you know? Well, they've they've really become ubiquitous, you know, with all the platforms, all the availability, all of the variety. Um, You know, you can play games everywhere, anytime, you know, except when you're driving a car. (laughs) So do you consider yourself a gamer? Oh, yes. Yeah. I still like puzzle games. I'm I'm really not good on the first-person shooters. As you get old, you lose reaction time and my kids can just mop me up so but if there's stealth and guile i'm your man <laughs> awesome awesome um i want to talk a little bit about you know building a business because you know people are watching this show they're entrepreneurs they're in startup mode whatever wherever they are and they're really trying to put it together what advice would you give them about starting having a startup right now i believe that most entrepreneurs today make the same mistake they all think that they can't start until they get venture capital or some money. When in fact, most of the time, they should get their business started without money. And people say, well, how, how do you do that? And, uh, and I say, it's happening all the time. And a lot of times, people want to be entrepreneurs, but they're kind of looking for a block because they don't want to really face their dreams. You know, oh, I'm going to be a hugely successful entrepreneur if I could just get somebody to raise money for me. Yeah, there's that if-only statement, right? Yeah. Which becomes a crutch. It's a a crutch. And uh, Atari started with $250 of paid-in capital. Actually, it's $500. $250 from me, $250 from my partner. And that's all the money that went into the company until we got venture capitalized, we got some, I think we raised $3 million, but we were already at $40 million in sales. So did you start with a proof of concept? I mean, were you pretty much self-sufficient? We started out as a work-for-hire company. We basically designed and, and uh, licensed it to others. White label. White label. Yeah. And it was after we did Pong, and it was turned down by one of our, we said, okay, we've got this free, let's just see if we can put it in a box and sell it. They didn't catch the vision? I mean, what they didn't like it? They didn't like the fact that it was only a two-player game. It never happened in the coin-op space before. That was sort of the thing that helped you launch into the atmosphere, right, and get noticed, get the press, exactly. get people's attention, and it blew up. Where did it go from there? Was it, was it sort of meteoric, or was it gradual? Meteoric. I mean, yeah. we basically, from this time, 40 years ago, for the next three years, we could not build machines fast enough. And it was in the days when 
we had our own factory, we were assembling them, we had lines of girls pushing, you know, yeah. caterpillars in, in circuit boards and yeah. soldering them and testing them and doing all that. And we were just growing like a weed. Couldn't meet the demand fast enough. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Things were great at that time, but what were some of the challenges you had with that kind of explosive growth? Cash. You know, you can't make enough profit to run your business in a normal way uh, without capital. And so we had to turn our inventory literally every four days. Wow. Because, and, and so we funded the company basically through our vendors. Our vendors would give us 30, 60 days. We'd build the product and ship it for cash every three days. Mm -hmm. And that was positive cash flow. It was only a problem when all of a sudden we had a glitch in our production and all of a sudden you ended up with stuff on the floor for one week, two weeks, three weeks because you didn't have a part or, or you'd made a designer or something yeah. like that. What kind of advice would you give to people sort of in that same boat? You know, what would, what would you have done differently if you could have? Or were you just sort of stuck with it? Well, I think that... Um, most of my advice, I, I consider Atari to have been a masterstroke of doing a lot with a little. As I got a little bit older, I got a little sloppy. And I had the temerity to say I can make it faster than I can piss it away. Mm -hmm. Not true. <laughs> and I basically got involved in a robotics company that I did not foresee the technical problems that I'd have. You know, I've always thought that marketing was the difficult thing. If you can sell it, you can always figure out a way to, to build it. So were you trying to automate? Or in a, look no, no. I was, or? Th this was actually a personal robotics company later after Atari. Okay. And, uh, and that's where I put a whole bunch of money in it and just could not solve the problems. And, uh, and it was a big lesson for me. You know, and I would never ramp up manufacturing without having all the technical problems solved again. Yeah, it's... it's that was really stupid. It's <laughs> good advice. It's good advice. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the core principles in gaming today. You know, we see a lot of gamification happening. We see it with um, mobile apps, platforms like even Foursquare, Facebook check-in where we're, you know, leaving kind of a digital footprint of where we're at. And, you know, in some foreseeable future, uh, if not today, gamification is happening um, with apps and all kinds of things. What, what's your take on that? Well, I believe that the best is yet to come. I think that we're just at the beginning of, of game uh, involvement. The, um, the reality is that it is such a creative medium, and it melts a, a really good level of emerging technology in a very, very special way. And I think that mesh networks and uh, geo-positioning and augmented reality, all of these things are going to be really, really important. I mean, I think that we're less than five to six years away from the holodeck, which is kind of pretty cool, or Westwood, or, or some of the, I mean, we're here in Westwood. <laughs> So do you see, like all gaming, the platform general going to the cloud? Is that what you're talking about? I think some will. 
Um, I, I think that simple games will stay, uh, you know, on your smartphone and, and on your iPad and various things. The You can almost not talk about the gaming business anymore because it is just proliferated into so many threads yeah. that you almost have to focus on each thread. So seeing mobile as its own platform, seeing console as its own, is that what you're talking about? Right. Yeah. And cloud as its own. I mean, the you're seeing more and more compute power being built into a television set. And so with cloud computing and a network connection and a television set, you're a gamer. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think uh, live has done for the video game business? You know, being able to play someone across the country or across the world uh, in real time. I think the human being will always be social. And part of being social is to compete and to collaborate and to, you know, create a raiding party and move into the tundra as a, as a horde. Yeah. Uh, and so I think this is all fun stuff. This is all part of our, uh, you know, our evolutionary brain. And uh, it's, it was bound to happen. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, some of these guys and girls are spending six, eight, 10, 14 hours a day becoming the expert of the champion. Um, and, you know, their motivation ranges from, you know, a vanity play to being a true influencer, right, in, in their particular tribe or their community. And there's some people that are making some serious money. They're millionaire professional players in yeah. Korea right now and, uh, and some in the United States. Yeah, and then brands are paying attention, right, because they've got this massive audience, this massive right. following, and brands are trying to, to plug into that also. So we're seeing video game stars, you know, even uh, like a YouTube personality like iJustine, who's a huge gamer. Right. You know, she's sort of locked arms with Xbox and she's got a massive following. Yeah. Uh, and we're seeing her on Spike TV and we're seeing, seeing her in uh, Microsoft commercials and TV spots all over the place. So it's a whole new world for the players and the brands combined, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What's one of the most difficult things you've done in your business life? The difficult part is when to give up. And I am really, really reticent to do that. And sometimes there's a concept or a project that is before its time, after its time, its time will never come. Yeah. And, and a lot of times you're just bumping up against obstacles that will ultimately yield to you. Making that judgment call is the hardest thing you can do as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I'd like to know the answer to that too. What, how, do you, how do you figure that out? How do you know? What are some of the signs at least, you think? I like companies that have some natural velocity. That means there is some demand if you quit advertising, if you quit doing everything, Every once in a while, the phone will ring and, and with an order, mm-hmm. you know, and even if it's not enough to put you in positive cash flow, that least says that there's some demand for. Yeah, they're doing. they want more. They want more. Yeah. At least somebody does. Yeah, and you figure 
for every one of those that wants more, that know about you, there's probably 20 million out there that are in the same situation, but they don't know about you yet. Right. And, uh, but then you calculate on the back of the napkin, oh, gee, you know, but that's going to cost me $2.47 to get that person to sign up, and that will yield me a buck. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, still upside down. Still upside down. Yeah. And those, those are really hard judgment calls. How important is company culture? How important are people in the development of a new company? Talk about that a little bit. Corporate culture is everything. If you think of the first five or six people that you have on your team, if any one of them is a toxic, your whole company will grow with that deformed limb yeah. or deformed feature. And so you've got to make sure that your corporate culture is sound and your corporate structure is sound. The number of really screwed up capital structures that companies have um, with entrepreneurs is, is amazing. And where they always get into trouble is giving stock for work. Yep. Because the stock stays when the work stops. Right. And that really creates this thing where the guy's off in Tahiti and he still owns a big percentage of the company and he never put any money in and he helped a little bit, but he was basically a screw up. And now what do you do? He's got the stock. And uh, I just recommend to never ever issue stock without a very, very tight buyback provision. It's good advice. You, you've got to really make sure that your capital structure is sound and not doesn't lead to toxicity in the future. I've seen companies fail strictly on that issue. So how do you get people, how do you get people to really catch the vision? You know, when you're one of the founders and you put the blood, sweat and tears into the business, it's not difficult. But then as you start to grow, you really need people to adopt and, and capture the vision that you've got to carry yourself into the next phase. How do you do that? The most important thing I hire for is one characteristic, enthusiasm. There are people who are basically optimistic and happy and engaged in life. And those people just carry a cloud of capability around with them. And I try very, very hard to only hire enthusiastic people and to fire people who are wet blankets. Attitude makes a big difference, doesn't it? And I believe that you can train for everything if you have enthusiasm around you. That's awesome advice. It really is. Um, I think a lot of these companies have the best intentions and then it just, it's so difficult, right? To, yeah. to get people to really catch, capture the vision because they may not always be 100% invested like you are, but um, I mean, attitude is a great part of it. I think you can get them to be invested. And the trick is, once you get a person to, to start using the our company, and that's where stock options, and that's where, where shared vision and celebrate together, I, I'm gonna tell you a secret. Okay, I'm listening. I have a, uh, I've just 
written a book called Finding the Next Steve Jobs, which is all about this. How do you find and hire creative people and create a nurturing environment for creating the new iPhone, for creating and, and building Toy Story and, and, and doing all these things? Yeah. Because I was the only person that ever gave Steve Jobs a job. And so I felt that a lot of people have been asking me, well, what did I find about him? And the answer was he was intense and enthusiastic about everything he did. He was a guy that, that acted Passion. over and over again, passionate. And, uh, and that is, that is the, link, the, the, the gold standard of entrepreneurship. It's awesome advice. How do you stay focused? If, you know, you're, you're a very ambitious, very active entrepreneur. You have been for 40 plus years. Um, how do you stay focused and how do you keep a balance? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, that is my biggest problem. I have a curious mind. I get going down a rat hole all the time. I always have two or three ideas that I'm germinating. Um, but you got to get the work done. Are you good at delegating? You let people, you know, I'm very good at delegating. Yeah. And, uh, so you're the idea guy, you're the visionary. Well, unfortunately, um, I wish it were just that, but it turns out that you have to create structure. You have to be involved in hiring, particularly in the early days. And you really are the chief salesman for your business. Business development and deals and joint ventures and and other things, unfortunately, it just seems like anybody but the CEO doesn't work. And so I end up spending way too much time with attorneys and and, and uh, you're stuck in the weeds. But uh, you got to do it. Yeah. But I love the technology part. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about te technology as it's kind of blossomed in to include social media and other things. How has social media, you think, influenced the video game industry or helped entrepreneurs in general with businesses? You know, you have Facebook at a billion users. You've got all kinds of different platforms out there. YouTube with video, Twitter. One of the, one of the expensive parts of video gameness is marketing, discoverability. You know, how do you stand out with 250,000 other games on the iPhone? Yeah. Well, it's really hard. Yeah. And the social networks properly deployed can be a way to get discovered without spending a pile of cash. I mean, I'm always looking for what I call the innovator's bonus. And what is an innovator's bonus? It's really where you do something different enough that you're remarkable, i.e., people remark about you. Right. And so the more you can be creative and punch the noise of sameness, get some virality, get, you know, the social media engaged in your stuff, and you can get $10 million worth of advertising for a nickel and a dime. So before we finish, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Well, I'm doing a lot of interesting things in education right now. Tell me about and it. we're developing software that teaches kids 10 times faster than a classroom. And we believe that... Is it using gameplay? Using gameplay. Yeah. Game, it, 
think of it as game technology, but not gamification right. per se. Uh, but it turns out that if kids learn quickly, they think it's fun. Yes, and you you get a confidence, right? Yeah, That's exactly. why I, I never loved math, because I was not good at it. Well, our stuff will make it so that you'll be good at math and love it. And uh, we actually think we can teach four years of high school in six months. Wow. With better retention, better longevity, better better understanding. And what I hope... This is the brain rush uh, This brain rush. Yep. And what I hope is that we will take that extra time and reintroduce maker, you know, shop, build stuff, make a YouTube video, you know, market on eBay. We, I believe that any junior high school, high school student should be aware and facile with the digital tools. So this is an incubator of sorts. You're, you're really nurturing the next generation of creators and business exactly. owners and entrepreneurs. That's awesome. I mean, if you, if you want to have real enthusiasm about the kids who are growing up right now, go to Maker Faire. Magical. And, and so is the product out yet or is it still in development? Where's it at in the cycle? We are doing some tests with a, with a product called Wordplay, which just teaches Spanish vocabulary. But uh, we will be real loud uh, second quarter of next year. Oh, that's exciting. I wanted to take a quick second to thank you for watching and listening. It means the world. Because in 2008, when I created this show, I was in a very different and difficult place. You know, up to that point, I'd worked for about 11 different companies and bosses. My last real job with a paycheck and health benefits was at Universal Pictures, working on the brand marketing and strategy team in the home entertainment division with budgets of over $30 million. I left Universal to pursue my dream of becoming a writer, director, and producer, having my own production company. So my little startup was brand new and self-funded, heading into the Great Recession, and I felt like I was in huge trouble. I created Behind the Brand to solve my own problem. The idea was to produce a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, and the stories behind their success so that we could take a page from their playbooks. Millions of you now watch and listen to my show every month, and I'm so grateful. And over the last few years, I've seen a lot of shows popping up that look like us, which is fine and predictable. But if you're new here, here's how I'm a little bit different. If you asked me how I built this, I would have to answer, it was an original idea born out of necessity, not imitation. I'm not a journalist with a fancy pedigree or someone who's never worked in business. This show is not distributed by one of the largest publishers in the world. We are fiercely independent, and I'm proud of it. I'm not one of these multimillionaires who built a show to promote their huge life insurance company, wine business, or real estate empire, or to sell you self-help programs. Nope. I'm probably a lot like you. I'm married, raising four kids, and running my business. I'm in the trenches every day trying to keep my head above water and figure out how to be a little bit better tomorrow than I was today. I'm your eyes and ears when I go behind the brand. Thank you again for all the love and attention. There's no way I could do this without your support. 
If you feel like it, don't forget to leave a review with as many stars as you think is fair. I'm a package deal. Yeah. I can write the whole song and rap for real. Yeah. I got my head in the cloud with a pun intended. I don't need to see nobody. I don't want no visits. Introverted, I just flirt with the music. Small circles, how I choose it. Stay away from squares. They the one that look like a L7. I've been doing this since I was 11. And the shit gets real.